You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hi, Chris. Hello. Hello. Uh, Chris has gathered Hi. his favourite facts from the Institute. <laughs> Hi. Um, Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. Uh, you been up to much, Chris? Um, yeah. What much have you been up to? All the much. Such much. Such much. <laughs> Has the, has the Institute been busy in a way? It's such busy. Good. I mean, we can carry on like this for a while, but would you like to, uh, would you like to do some facts? Yes. In the words of Rubius Hagrid, if he were an academic and not the half-giant keeper of keys and grounds and care of magical creatures professor at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, you're a fact, Harry. <laughs> Because in this scenario, Harry is off to the Munchausen School of Research and Nonfiction. And the sorting house will obviously put him in Chicken Door. <laughs> All our facts are now fact-checked by our own independent fact-checker, Chris Parr from the Munchausen Institute. Here's the first one of the show. I'm not independent, am I? I'm part of the institute that does the podcast. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. No, but if you, if you fact-checked the facts, you'd do that on your own. Yeah, but I'm not independent, though, because I'm representing the institute in the podcast. So I've got a vested interest, haven't I? It's a conflict of interest if you're trying to make that claim, Piper. I mean, that kind of was the joke, but I mean, all right. <laughs> You're just getting me back for every time I underline your jokes. I'm not underlining the joke. I'm questioning the, the very fabric of the joke. Because <laughs> what you do is just you say the joke again. What I do is I pick apart the joke to see how it works and then realise, oh, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I thought that was funny. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Fine. Fact one. Fuck off. Okay, bye. No, come back, because I don't have any facts of my own. <laughs> Can you do the fact, please? <laughs> the Catholic Church ran out of communion wafers when the bakers went on strike. Okay, uh, so like, just, just for our um, non-Catholic listeners, uh, during the Eucharist, the Catholic Church offers its congregation sacramental bread, uh, which through a process called transubstantiation transforms the eater into a cannibal, this sacramental bread or host as it's sometimes called, or even perhaps more confusingly lamb, uh, as it's even less sometimes called, is an important part of the Holy Communion in the Catholic Church. Along with wine, which magically turns into blood when the churchgoer drinks it, uh, this, is, this is all perfectly fine and normal and not at all terrifying. So tell us about these magical bread bakers, Chris, and why did they stop making the circular horror toast? Well, I mean, they're not they're not magic because it's not them that makes the bread allegedly turned into the flesh of Jesus. It's, I guess, Jesus himself, I suppose, like zaps the bread or something. Oh, but it looks really fancy little wafer things like, you know, I thought they were just sort of special in some way other than like not being bread. So way back in the mid-history times in Catholic Church-dominated Europe, the Oublieux Guild was responsible for producing communion wafers for use in Catholic Mass. Fun further fact, 
the irons they used to print patterns on the wafers gave rise to the waffle iron. Really? Really, yeah. I haven't made it up. <laughs> so making the wafers was seen by the church as a sacred duty. So the oubliers were paid uh, basically at cost. It just they were paid for the flour and water they would use in the creation of the wafers. But because this was a full-time job for many oubliers, and this small stipend from the church wasn't enough to support themselves and their families, the Parisian chapter of the Oubliers Guild went on strike until the church agreed to pay them higher wages. Right. So, okay. So, so, so basically these people weren't, were essentially weren't paid at all. When you say they were paid for what they used, I mean, that's basically just their overhead. So they, they weren't paid a wage at all. They weren't, that's, that's it. They just got what they needed for the job. So that's, yeah, that's not, that's, that's not getting paid. That's slave labor, basically. What did they, what, so that, unsurprisingly, they went on strike. Fair enough. Uh, what did, what did the church do? Well, at first, the church was unwilling to meet the oubliers' demand, assuming that they would come to their senses soon enough and start making their little bits of bread again. In the meantime, the church burned through their remaining wafer stocks. Not literally burned, just in case you get confused, Piper. I just mean that they went through them rather quickly. Thank you. Um, And when, at that point, the strike was still going on, Priests had to resort to giving out normal bread during that, just normal bread from, you know, down the shop or whatever. And this sparked a debate among priests as to whether this normal bread was divinely approved by Jesus for being transubstantiated into his flesh, or if he wasn't going to do it because it wasn't the right bread. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay, so because they didn't know, they didn't know. They were like, well, we've, we've definitely, we've had word, we've had word from god or or jesus or whatever for for these little round discs they're fine but we don't know if these 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 little little offcuts of bread from londis are going to (laughs) do from medieval londis yeah exactly yeah ye olde londis i feel like i'd be more inclined to go there if it was called ye olde londis (laughs) (laughs) so they 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 didn't have their little discs did they uh, oh and they yeah and they couldn't use their normal bread well they didn't know if they could they didn't know if jesus let them Did they work out like a viable alternative to the in-house bakers in the end? Yeah, as the strike continued and the church continued to refuse to meet the oubliers' demand, priests became desperate for wafers and some resorted to baking their own with mixed results. Some were basically fine, more or less circular, Others were more like shapeless lumps than circles, but still all right. And some priests had to get a second goblet so they could pour the unbaked paste into their parishioner's mouth. <laughs> right, so so some of these priests weren't very good at baking, to the point where they actually still had liquid bread. Yeah, well, I mean, if you spend all day just going, oh, God forgives you, oh, let's sing this hymn, oh, look at this bit in the Bible, that's good then you might not know the the ins and outs of heating up water and flour. Yeah, I mean I suppose I suppose really we can forgive them, can't we? They're very forgiving people. We can we owe them that. <laughs> Say ten Hail Marys and eat some shit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so right, Chris, so so obviously they they the Catholic Church were in turmoil because they didn't have their little little bits of unleavened wafer bollocks anymore. And they had to deal with whatever the priest came up with, and that wasn't particularly good. So how did this all come to conclusions? 
eventually the church caved into the oublieurs' demands and agreed to pay them a living wage. And communion wafer stocks were finally replenished and parishioners in some parts of Paris rejoiced at having to drink flour paste anymore. But some of the more proficient priests had, during the strike, really gotten into baking and continued to bake their own wafers. Some of them even experimenting with different flavours, like banana wafers. Oh wow! Okay, so 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 the so some of these priests they were they weren't creating just flour paste, and they were actually doing an all right job. And they realised, well, do you know what? Fuck it, we can just carry on without these bakers and just just keep making them. Okay. I mean, you've got to have a side hustle, haven't you? Yeah, it's not really a hustle, is it? Well, it's now they're getting a living wage for it. I mean, uh, maybe if the priests were doing it on the side, they're probably not doing it for any money. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's what I meant, yeah. <laughs> I see. Um, <laughs> so, 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 I mean, for a bit, the, the church thought they were pretty screwed. They weren't going to be able to do this weird thing that they, that they like doing with the wafers on tongues and stuff. What did they? What did the Catholic Church think would actually happen if they didn't get to do their regular, metaphorical, cannibalistic ritual for a bit? Well, long term, everyone would go to hell because they hasn't performed one of the sacraments. Right, bad, obviously bad. Uh, yeah, I think hell is generally considered to be a, a bad place to go. Short term. They thought that Jesus might have gotten really angry because people weren't eating his transubstantiated flesh and drinking his transubstantiated blood. And he might have sent like all plagues and diseases and disasters and killed some babies. You know, all that all that good Old Testament stuff that God used to do. Yeah, oh, he was a maniac back in the day, wasn't he? I'm glad he calmed down. Yeah, he calmed down to the point where he literally had his own son nailed to a tree, yeah. That's that's mellowing out, yeah. I mean, compared to the Old Testament, it pretty much is. But, I mean, actually, you've probably got to take a look at your life choices if that is mellowing out <laughs> for you. Okay, so let's just get into this, this whole sort of wafer business, Chris, because I don't really... I'm Methodist, I don't understand the wafer thing. We just had bread from Londis. Um, why, why, uh, why do they use the little wafer things anyway? There are several theories as to why they use those little wafer things anyway. And the most prevalent is that it is unleavened bread, like what the Israelites had at Passover when God killed a bunch of babies. Oh, right. So it's like like a sort of uh, mass-produced version of a close approximation of whatever they thought that probably looked like. Yeah. It could also tie into the church's pretense of austerity being just water and flour rather than some of those fancy breads you get. Also, being basic, just flour and water, the idea might be that people won't steal it and, you know, go home with the bread they got at church to use in their normal meals. Which is also why they put it right in your mouth rather than just, you know, handing it to you. Hang on, so so you go into this fucking church with fucking gold everywhere and you sit down, you get given a hymn book and and all of that and, and, and there's like it's basically the most expensive house you've ever been in. And then you go and sit right at the front and and they go, Wait a minute, I'm gonna put this cheapest bit of something resembling what could potentially be described as bread right on your tongue so that you don't steal it. Yeah. All right, fine. (laughs) 
Another theory is that it's easier for Jesus to transubstantiate just flour and water because the more complex, fancy breads would be more difficult. And he's got to do, you know, a lot. All the, 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 the masses going on at any given time, people being given bits of bread. He's got to go, oh, that's my flesh, that's my flesh, that's my flesh. And... It's much easier if it's just flour and water rather than, you know, tiger bread or that one with the, the bits of cheese on it. Yeah, you don't really want to tire out an all-powerful being, do you? No, he'll get cranky and kill all your babies. <laughs> Chris, are there, uh, are there any other times that uh, staff members have gone on strike within the church? Some nuns in Italy went on strike when the church took away the crucifix in their chapel. What? Why, why, did the church, why did the church take away the nun's crucifix? Oh, it sounds like this is going to be a, a joke, but... <laughs> what would it be, a joke, Piper? Like, jokes are like made-up things crafted to make people laugh, and this is a podcast about true facts that are not made up. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't mean to degrade the, uh, the, the validity of the podcast in any way. But yes, no, you, you don't ever make jokes. I'm very sorry. But it did sound like the setup for a joke. So they took away the crucifix because the Jesus on this particular cross was rather, shall we say, hench. And the church thought it was inappropriate for a religious establishment populated entirely by women. But the nuns stopped doing all of their nun stuff, like um, singing gospel choirs, presumably, and looking after orphans, I guess, until the church gave back their buff Jesus. All right, so their Jesus is too sexy is basically what he's saying. It's just like fit Jesus. Yeah, yeah, they were afraid that they would have been, you know, seeing to themselves rather than doing their nun business. I see, I see. Um <laughs> sorry i just can't get over the concepts of sexy jesus because <laughs> i know that, I, that that is a thing i mean i i'm not into guys i'm particularly not into guys being crucified you know that's it's not my kink no kink shaming on this show but that's not my kink um but i mean i'm sure you and i and the listener at home have all noticed sometimes if if you do see a, a, a crucifix in a catholic church it's usually pretty buff isn't he? <laughs> He's all right. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes it's all thin and wasted and it's it's not as sexy. Unless that's your thing, obviously. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's I feel like we can kink shame if you're wanking off to UNICEF adverts. <laughs> oh, those flies, yeah. All over that kid's <laughs> face. Oh, God, I feel like we might have to cut that. <laughs> um... <laughs> That was a fact. This is a fact. This is F fact attack. Wait, Chris, why didn't we call it fact attack? This would have been that would have been a great word for the title for the podcast. We could have had like Neil Buchanan as a guest star. And what would uh, Neil Buchanan do? Well, I'm no expert, but I feel like we'd we'd try and get him to discuss facts. Um, he might do a big, fa a big, big. Well, he'd call it an art attack, but we call it a fact attack. Like a, you could get that big box of facts um, and expand it into some sort of diorama of fact i don't fucking know chris all right listen i just thought i like jimmy somehow i spill all the facts on the ground and then you'll be carrying moves them around on the floor so in an aerial shot it looks like something and then that statue says something funny yes and then throws his head back and does that weird laugh 
and he has an attempt at doing some art himself, but it's not very good. Oh, what is he like? <laughs> uh, anyway, there is a gift shop at the South Pole. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, gift shops are almost universally located at popular tourist destinations, Chris. Uh, the South Pole has, as far as I'm aware, no plant or animal life whatsoever. And there's only like an expedition to it every decade or so. Is it, <laughs> is it doing well, Chris? Well, I should point out straight away, it's not actually at the South Pole. It's at an American scientific outpost in Antarctica. I just thought starting the fact with South Pole would make it more interesting. Are you uh, sensationalising your facts these days, Chris? Uh, well, you've got to do that a bit at the start. You've got to have a little bit of that at the top of the fact. A bit of that razzmatazz to draw him in. And then we hit him with the actual facts. Which is slightly less interesting. <laughs> well, because by that point, they're all, they're all geared up for learning about something. Froth, frothing, frothing, at, frothing at the mouth, champing at the bit or, or whatever. And, 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 and they don't care what you say after that point. They're already half-masked. <laughs> Yeah, they are tenting, as it were, for facts. <laughs> oh, please do just tell me about this gift shop. So because of this scientific outpost's isolation being in the tundra of Antarctica and the amount of time their staff spend there, which can be anything from six months to several years, the outpost has several amenities, uh, such as an arcade, a small cinema, a karaoke bar, and a gift shop for them to buy souvenirs before they leave the outpost and go home. They've got an arcade? An arcade, yeah, full of pinball machines and House of the Dead. And they've got some Switches in there, apparently. Some Switches? The current Nintendo console. Oh, right. I thought you meant actual switches. I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there are switches on some of the arcade games, yes. And there's a light switches in the building as well. Although people don't tend to use the light switches for entertainment purposes. No. <laughs> right, well, I mean, that's very exciting that they've got an arcade. What's the arcade called? I mean, it doesn't actually have a name because it's not a commercial arcade. It's just the arcade. Not Antarcade. I would call it Antarcade because like Antarctica... Antarcade. I mean, you could write to them and tell them this, but as far as they're concerned, there's actually need to name because it's the only arcade there. It's not like, oh, do you want to go to the arcade, Mr. Scientist Man? Yes, but which one? <laughs> there's so much choice out here on this continent. <laughs> there's literally nothing but arcades here in Antarctica. <laughs> uh, um... <laughs> Right, so well, let's move on to the gift shop then, because that is what this fact's really about. That's the that's the that's the guts of this fact, isn't it? Chris, gift shop, right? What are they? What are they? What sort of things do they sell in this uh, Antarctic gift shop? Well, the gift shop sells the usual gift shop stuff you'd expect, all themed around Antarctica, the South Pole, and the research station itself. So, erasers, rulers, notepads, pencils, mechanical pencils. Pens and those novelty pens which have like moving bits and liquids so when you turn it over the stuff moves in it. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, I love them. And usually there's like some like it's a uh, boomers fucking love them, don't they? Because they've got like 
if they, if it moves, sometimes sometimes it's got clothes on at the bottom because it's got a little filter on it. And then when it moves up, it's, it's got it's got a boobies out. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, most of the ones they sell are like little Antarctic scenes and the penguin will move down the, the tundra. But they do sell some ones where there's a lady in like a fur bikini because, you know, a fur bikini is better for the climate in Antarctica than a, a normal bikini. So she, you know, conscious of the the temperature but then you turn the pen over and it falls off and now she's all naked so all her planning for the temperature has gone to naught anyway it's, it's interesting how it's almost like it's like a two-frame comic isn't it but the third one would of course be her getting hypothermia because that's just like it, it would not it would not go very well um if you're if you're any items of clothing however skimpy they are um fell off i think you would die pretty quickly and and i i think you know given that information um chris i feel like this is not so much a novelty item more just kind of sad really isn't it really yeah also pencil sharpeners oh that's good yeah because uh, so if you've got pencils and that you know just like already you're just fucking sorted for your pencil experience <laughs> pencil experience yes <laughs> You're walking into the gift shop and you say to the cashier, I want the the full pencil experience. Don't skimp on me now. I want the the entire thing. No holes barred pencil experience. Hit me. Well, my scientific friend, you've come to the right fucking place. Listen, sit down. I'm going to give you a, a pencil. Good start. I like it. Good foundation for my extreme pencil experience. Please go on. Right, yeah, there you go. And and if you if you go completely nuts and start using your pencil to the point where it's not got a point anymore, did you like that little bit of wordplay? Already, already got the sales patter down. I'm tenting, Mrs. Salesperson, <laughs> or Miss, or Ms. Who knows? Oh fuck! <laughs> I'm not assuming your marital status. What's happening now is 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 we've we've, te- we've we've come away from the joke a little bit. <laughs> so I'm just going to pull it back. Um, <laughs> So, so you've got your pencil, and if you if you if you go a bit nuts and you use it, you 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 use the pencil up to the to the wood bit beyond the the graphite, then I've got this thing that will extend the life of the pencil a hundredfold. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> That's a bold claim, Ms. Salesperson. <laughs> and 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 if you uh, happen to be, while you're going nuts with your pencil doing your scientific predictions or whatever like you're noting down like weather changes or some bollocks um then that if you make a mistake i've got this eraser wow you thought of everything with a little yes yes it's a it's an eraser with a polar bear on it ah ah it seems miss salesperson that you may not be quite as knowledgeable as you claim as I'm sure our listeners know, that polar bears are Arctic creatures, not Antarctic. The thing is, it's quite hard to get a hold of, uh, you know, ice-related products that are mass-produced and, and cheap. Fucking penguins, Piper. Penguins would have been fine, wouldn't it? All right, there's a fucking penguin on it. Like, it's polar bears North Pole, penguin South Pole, that's how it works. 
Right, listen, shut up, sit down. You've got, you got your pencil. I'm giving you that for free. Right? Oh, wow. Well, it's compensations for your ignorance of hemispheric <laughs> animal distribution. You got your pen. <laughs> Fuck off. You got your pencil. You've got your sharpener. Other than other than um, multifaceted erasers, porn pens, um, propelling pencils, normal pencils, and uh, pencil sharpeners, which is essentially stationary, isn't it? Is what is what we're talking about. Um, what other? I mean, are there any novelty items? Anything a bit more weird? Yeah. Well, the the porn pens, as you put it does give you an idea of some of the other stuff they sell at this Antarctic gift shop. They do sell some more off-colour products. They sell a joke frozen poo, which is basically a plastic poo which looks like it's got some ice on it. Oh, it's a classic, Chris. It's, it's good. You know those um, those plastic ice cubes you can get that have like a, a plastic fly in them to make it look like uh, you've got like a, a fly frozen in your drink? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, they sell plastic ice cubes that are yellow to make them look like frozen wee. Ah, uh, what, what a pantomime. And they sell something called the Chili Willy. Right, please do explain the Chili Willy. <laughs> A very, very small plastic penis in packaging that says, it's the cold, honest. <laughs> Do you know what? Of all the things you mentioned, that is the, probably the one that I would buy. <laughs> well, I think that says something about you, doesn't it? That's my pure sense of humour, absolutely. There's no question. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's it. The thing is, it, it, I mean... It... <laughs> It's it's weird that they managed to get this much out of it. Actually, this whole sort of concept of a Antarctic gift shop. There's not much in the way of uh, like materials in the South Pole, is there? They'd have to like import stuff. All there is is like ice in the South Pole. Well, they did used to sell vials of Antarctic ice as souvenirs. Ant. Right. Okay. Right. Let's no no no. Don't stop talking because I'm I'm. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, need to, I need to work out. Hang on. They used to sell vi- they they used to sell ice. Yeah, well I should say it's not ice, it's it's water because obviously, you know, above a certain temperature it stops being ice. It's how ice works. It's how water works. It's how temperature works. Yes. It's how physics works. <laughs> yes, it's, it's how the fundamental laws of nature work, yeah. Um and they had to stop selling vials of Antarctic water. Because it turns out it's actually illegal to take Antarctic ice off the continent because it could contain unknown contaminants, diseases or microbes or whatever. Oh, yeah. Same, same as like if you want to go to um, like Australia, you can't like take dirt or like moss or lichen. Yeah, because it's a, a big old island that's quite far away from everywhere else. Yeah. So it didn't stop selling vials of Antarctic ice. But the, the vials it now sells are basically just imported bottled water advertised as real Antarctic ice. Okay, so I, I have to unpack this a little bit because this is, this is a concept that is clearly beyond me. Um, <laughs> uh, so they, <laughs> they started selling genuine real Antarctic ice that had melted and they'd put it into vials because they've got central heating in the shop and stuff so that it would have turned into water and that's fine. That's okay. I can understand the whole laws of nature. Understand. You could understand ice melting. 
Yes, I do understand ice melting. So they stopped doing that because that's illegal. And now they import bottles of bottles of water that aren't even related to the Antarctic and they call it real Antarctic water. So so why is it why is, I mean I don't know if I'm missing something in the logic here, Chris, but why is it legal to falsely advertise bottled water as Antarctic, but it's illegal to sell actual Antarctic ice. Like, why Why is there that... I mean, I, I know we've talked about why it's illegal to sell Antarctic ice. I understand that. But why is that worse than... <laughs> because it's... Uh, since the ban, they've turned the bottled water vials into kind of a, a joke gift advertised with over-the-top slogans like 100% totally genuine Antarctic water. And we probably could have just sold you bottled water, but we haven't. Honest. Ah, we, what were the chances? We found another fact. Here's the third, and hopefully not final fact, direct from the Chris's mouth. Well, the chances were fairly good, given that we do four facts a week. That's true, but like, you know, I don't want to risk the possibility that we might have like an earthquake in between or something and not be able to do another one. And we still put them out even if there's three. Well, like an earthquake in between the recording session and yet we still somehow edit the podcast and put it out. <laughs> you know what, guys? I'm trapped underneath tons of rubble. I still managed to edit the first two facts. Also, we're in one of the least earthquake-prone areas of the planet. Well, I might have a heart attack, and and you might, you, some someone might send you the audio. Yeah, but unlike an earthquake, that would probably improve the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us the facts. <laughs> Boredom is a sport. Being being bored isn't isn't fun. Uh, it's like the opposite of fun. It's boring, hence the name. But now, I, now I know it's a sport. I feel like um, I've given boredom, boredom like a hard time. I mean, maybe it can be fun. But then, if I have fun uh, being bored, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not really being bored anymore. Uh, Chris, can you help me make sense of this before I get very confused? Yes, if you're having fun, you're not bored. Thank you. <laughs> right, fact four. <laughs> <laughs> um. So athletes who become bored at a competitive level, or boarders as they're called, compete in tests of tedium in which they perform dull, repetitive tasks like copying out of the phone book or putting the lids on pens or sealing envelopes or just sit in an empty room for as long as they can stand to. Oh, okay. So... It really is literally just what it sounds like it is. It's just like just doing boring stuff and just being as boring as you can. So, so, so as a sport though, how does it, how does it, how, how the rules actually work then? So when competing in these events, although I think events is far too exciting a term to describe what they do, boarders are judged by professional boredom judges on a number of categories, including time, which is the amount of time spent doing whatever the boring task is, number of outbursts, which is the outpourings of anger at the boring task. The less outbursts, the more points. Number of yawns, again, 
less yawns is better. And time spent asleep during these tasks. Again, less time spent asleep means more points. Oh, okay. So, so, so all of these things that they could do uh, could could actually just basically be indicators that they're then they're not bored. They're actually yeah. If you're shouting, "This is horrible! I don't want to do this anymore," you're clearly having a much more fun time than copying up the phone book. So if you are uh, theoretically the most bored person in the world, you wouldn't have the energy to say, I'm bored. Yeah. So, so presumably you can, you can pretty much pretend to be bored, I, I would imagine. Are there measures in place to ensure that boarders aren't faking being bored? How would you fake being bored? Do you think they're sitting there like copying out the phone, but like inwardly thinking, this is great. This is the greatest time. I've had. This is literally the best day of my life. But outwardly, they're having to go, oh, so boring. I hate having to do this. This is really bad, honestly. But the thing is, like, I, I, I wanted to ask this question before, but, but like, you've, you've obviously uh, pointed out now that the, uh, the outbursts and yawns and nodding off and things are actually, uh, they, they reduce the, uh, the, the points for boredom. Um, you just it's, it's just an endurance test then really isn't it it's not it's not about faking or not faking is I guess what you're saying is is that it's just it's just you have to just experience these things and just not do anything yeah um so to take your question seriously for a moment they did want experiment with monitoring the borders brain activity during these tests of tedium to see if they were actually bored uh, the problem was that having your brain activity monitored is inherently interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, for some reason that's really funny. <laughs> sorry, it's just like, you're just like, oh my God, I'm so bored, I'm so bored. Okay, we're going to give you a test for boredom. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Okay, well, I, listen, Chris. I love I love all these novelty sports. I mean, last last was it last week or the week before? We talked about um, um, uh, human surfboards, and like that was great. I mean, but I hadn't heard of that, and I haven't heard of this either. Like, I I feel like this should be like a like a a, a much more recognised sport. Why haven't I heard of it before? Well, as with all sports, sponsorship and broadcasting is where the real money is. But competitive boredom organisers have trouble getting sponsorship deals and TV coverage for obvious reasons. Competitive boredom is boring. Uh, yeah, I mean, OK, yeah, fine. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't probably wouldn't sit and watch it on TV. I, the thing is, if it, actually, ironically, I, I guess I, if I did sit and watch it on TV, I'd probably if I endured the entire experience, I'd probably be a boredom champion. I think you'd probably be like an amateur boarder. I think watching competitive boredom is probably not as boring as competing in competitive board. I mean, it's like saying you've watched golf, so you're a professional golfer. But they have tried various strategies to make the sport more interesting for audiences. They've tried playing dramatic music over the footage of competitive boredom events. But dramatic music could only do so much when you're just watching someone licking envelopes. I mean, I, I think that um, if, if it's someone doing something incredibly boring, dramatic music would actually feel kind of hilarious. Yeah, but for eight hours straight, though. 
Oh my god! The longer I mean, you've you've watched Stuart Lee. Yeah, but Stuart Lee doesn't do a bit for eight hours though, Piper. Can you imagine if he did though? Like you know, you know how like you know what I can, Piper, and it would be really, really boring. <laughs> okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> they tried to add exciting commentary to the events. Uh, which mainly consisted of the commentators shouting everything to make it seem even more exciting. But again, shouting can only do so much when somebody is just putting the lids on pens. He's putting the lids on the pen and he's doing it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Again, and again, and again. Oh, fucking hell. So deep in a minute. Call my agent. Tell him I'm done. I'll do fucking sloth racing again. Anything but this. <laughs> they also tried emphasising the personalities of the competitors, as they do in, like, online poker. But the problem they ran up against was that the people who get bored at a competitive level are, unsurprisingly, rather boring themselves. So it's difficult to drum up enthusiasm when you're saying, and here comes Derek Johnson, accountant from Hull, who in his spare time collects bus tickets. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, and also you're not you're not you know if if it even if it like lasted for a little bit and like you know you had some sort of boredom grandstand or whatever like BBC boredom, um, you wouldn't get to a point where like a you know like a Gary Lineker scenario where he stopped doing sport and ended up doing presenting. You wouldn't get like like a one of these borders as they're called uh, just sort of retiring from boredom and becoming a tv personality to talk about the boredom and because because like their whole thing is like they're really good at getting bored um he talk about the boredom in a very dull manner he'd be like yes derek johnson is displaying exemplary endurance in this event in fact i believe he is employing the karasnikov technique which i don't know if you know but the karasnikov technique originates from 1956 and it's a very interesting story and i'm hoping that piper will stop me now because i think this particular bit has reached the end of its humor and we need to move on but she's not saying anything so i'll just carry on so in <laughs> please stop me piper so in 1956 <laughs> there was there was, uh, there was absolutely no way until until you until you begged <laughs> there was no way i was going to stop you <laughs> I couldn't stop you because that voice was so boring. <laughs> it was just, it, it was just perfect for the segment, right, Chris? Uh, we've, I mean, we. This is this is the uh, this is the most recent in a long line of sport-related facts we've had on the show recently, and I mean, they all keep getting banned because people keep dying. Um, 
and I, 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 can can you die of boredom? Is that like a that's I've heard of that before, right? That's the thing. I, I I'm pretty sure like this this is a is it is is that a thing? Well, contrary to the popular idea of dying of boredom, as you say, boarders statistically live longer than other demographics, which is thought to by scientists be because of the low levels of stress experienced by professional boarders. Well, there's no stress to, like, be good at being bored. Like, I feel I feel like there's, there's some... St- well, yeah, but if you're doing running, for example, then not only are you stressed about doing running, but you're also doing running, which is, you know, quite labour-intensive. Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, I feel like if it, if I ever wanted to do a sport, I feel like this would be the one, really, wouldn't it? Because like I'm I'm not really built for moving around a lot. Um, I could do this. I could I could do this, Chris. I I of all the sports we've talked about, I feel like this is this is like the one. I could totally fuck about like putting lids on pens. I mean, it, what you've done is you've 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 assured me that I probably won't die from doing it. So, <laughs> well. No, the point wasn't that they're less likely to die from doing the sport that they do. The point was that they're less likely to have health complications from doing the sport that they do because it's a low-stress sport. It's not like they're putting lids on pens and then suddenly the pens explode or something. (laughs) No, that is true. Well, thank you for clearing that up. It's it's the nuance of the uh, of the of the of the sport that's important here. Um, <laughs> what you've done, if you, is you is what I've done created that scenario. Mate. I've not done anything, Piper. This is all you. Credit where credit is due, Piper. <laughs> no, because you say you, you say things sarcastically as like a, as like a pretend scenario, and it just makes me think about it, and then it makes me laugh because you're like. Well, it's not like the like they're putting the lids on pens and then they explode in their hands. And I'm like, well, that would be a really good sport. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. That would be a completely different sport with a different purpose. Yes, it's got nothing to do with boredom. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's more fear. <laughs> yes. All right, listen. I mean, I want to feel better about myself now. What's the most boring thing you've ever done? Um, I once had to sit through you quote-unquote improvising a bit between the three wise men at the nativity and it quite literally went on forever do you know what's really interesting about that well nothing that's the the point i have no memory of that whatsoever (laughs) well it's basically going oh um we've forgotten the gifts oh what shall we do? What do we have? Um, I don't know. I have a button. Okay. Do we have buttons at this point in history? I don't know. Well, let's give it to him anyway. Okay. Right, well, I, I mean, I can... <laughs> so that's literally the most boring thing you've ever experienced, is it, Chris? Thank you. Well, what I'm going to do now to, to reduce the boredom, Chris, is I'm going to fucking move on to fact four, you little prick.
it's, it's the last fact of the show. Uh, let's make it memorable. Uh, Chris is going to do the whole thing through the medium of interpretive dance. Over to you, Chris. How would that work on the audio podcast? I was expecting you to just be silent for a while, to be honest, but you've ruined it. Right, yeah, but I mean, because you do this sometimes. You have a fact intro which seems to like fundamentally misunderstand the format of a podcast and sometimes specifically our own podcast. And yet you're somehow surprised that I then question the intro that has fundamentally misunderstood the format of an audio podcast and sometimes specifically our own podcast. Right, yeah. What? I, yeah, I can understand uh, your issue with that. Um, maybe if I describe what you could have done. No, it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. No, 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 please go on. Describe what I could have done. It'd be like in a, a game show when you've you've missed that on the top right and they go, here's what you could have won. Here, listener, is what you could have won. Go on, Piper. You could, I mean, you could do a little, uh, I don't know. Could, what are you good at? What, what dance moves have you got? I think as we discussed on the previous episode, I don't have any because I don't dance. All right. Well, maybe you should just maybe you should just like verbatim just read the fact out with the actual words. Okay. Uh, <laughs> George Orwell drafted a sequel to Animal Farm. At the original book, Animal Farm, or to give it its full title, Animal Farm, A Fairy Story, oddly has no fairies. Uh, But it does have talking animals and a lot of weird stuff happens in it, considering it's about a farm. I mean, I, I, I read The Sheep Pig, right? And that's about talking animals on a farm as well. Uh, but for the most part, they, I mean, they kind of stay in their lane. None of this rising up and taking over the farm or anything. Uh, apparently, it's like one of those fable stories you read when you're little, except it's not a fable for children. It's, it's, it's for grown-ups. And basically, like, it teaches poor people that if the government hasn't taught them properly about conf- how confusing stuff works, like taxes and that, that they, they should just do as they're told and, and keep quiet. Um, best to leave it to the posh people in suits, played in this case by the farmer. They might not have any clue what it's like for most people to live in their country, but at least they know what they know not to abuse their powers. Like poor people probably would. Uh, what's the what's the sequel about, Chris? Right. Well, um, its full title wasn't Animal Farm: A Fairy Story. That was included on some later editions and some translations. Its original title was Animal Farm a novel well not include not according to the website that i read it about it on so animal farm was about i mean i wasn't really paying attention to what you said because it went on for ages but um uh, it was about a revolution on a farm and the sequel to be called animal farm animals in the city would have seen the farm revolution spread to nearby towns Oh, okay. So, so it's 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 sort of the natural progression of the the revolutionary story, just moving on to like, yeah, okay, fine. So, what what was the what was the like the like the message of the book? So again, I don't know if you cover this in your introduction because it was really really long and boring, and I phased out for a bit. But Orwell's first book was an allegory for the October Revolution and the rise of Stalinism in Russia. 
in the sequel, the animal's antics in the cities is meant as a prediction of how Orwell saw Leninist-Stalinist communism spreading out from the USSR across the world. Okay. I mean, it's not like something we can relate to now then. It sounds like a much more... Uh a much more difficult premise to put across seeing as there was like a lot less humans in the original animal farm um did the animals get on with these other humans in the city oh well, all well according to the notes that have survived seem to have some trouble with how the animals would interact with the greater number of humans in the cities his notes uh, suggest that he was toying with a few different ideas one of which being an animal-human civil war, predicting what he thought might be a hot war between capitalist and communist states. Or perhaps humans somehow becoming less intelligent over the course of the novel, perhaps meant as a swipe at capitalism, but also preempting the trajectory of the human race in Planet of the Apes. Oh, well, you would bloody say that, wouldn't you? Yes, I would. You would. You would. I mean, you're known for it now. <laughs> I mean, so, all right. So, why? So, how come Orwell never finished this sequel to Animal Farm? Because he got all deaded. He did the dead. He done a dead. He went and done a dead, the silly bugger. <laughs> but, um, but despite dying before the the rise of communism out from the the USSR certain elements of his notes did eerily predict the rise of communism in places like China and Cuba one of the cities featured in his his plan shifted to blatantly state-run capitalism while still espousing a leninist stalinist ideology so foreshadowing China, and another blended Marxism with nationalism, in this case a weird dog-based speciesism, preempting the rise of communism in Cuba. Oh, oh okay, so that's actually, uh, that's more prescient than, than, than the original Animal Farm in a lot of ways, because that's actually two completely different nationalities that have, uh, that have been essentially what, what some might call predicted in in the uh in the unfinished work of um animal farm animals in the city that's that's very exciting yes well i mean animal farm wasn't prescient at all because it was about things that had already happened right <laughs> it's good to know you have a a basic understanding of what we're talking about here piper it's it's very comforting um yes good um <laughs> I feel like Cliff Notes has failed me slightly on this. <laughs> I feel like you've not actually read anything about Animal Farm, to be honest, Piper. <laughs> oh, I did. I did. I did. I read I, I, I read a lot of official essays on this because I was like, I know I'm not going to have time to read Animal Farm. <laughs> and yet somehow you still thought it was predicting future events. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what this is genuine. I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed. Right. I'm going to ask another question now. Because that how could that possibly go wrong? Um Right, so despite despite this being like an unpublished work, is there is there any chance you've got a copy of it? Well, there's not really any copies of it because it was more a collection of notes than actual prose. We do know that the leader of what has turned out to be the Cuba analogous city is a dog 
called Fido, uh, which is interesting in anticipating Fidel Castro. Oh. And the leader of what has turned out to be the China analogous city is a cat called Chairman Miao. <laughs> there is one complete passage which demonstrates Orwell's... Because Orwell himself was a socialist and his project was demonstrating how the so-called communist states were moving away from the project of actual socialism. And one complete passage does demonstrate Orwell's preoccupation in showing how far so-called communist states are from actual socialism. And I'll read that now. I would, I would love that. Chairman Miao addressed the gathered citizens of Cat City from his podium. Meow, 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 he said. A jumbled combination of sounds emerged from the crowd. Some, it seemed, understood perfectly what the chairman had said and applauded and cheered in support of the statement. Others, however, murmured in confusion. To them, Chairman Miao sounded more like the avaricious cats they had overthrown than the revolutionary leader to whom they had pledged their allegiance. The chairman continued his speech. Meow, 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 he said. And it was impossible to say if anything had changed at all. Um, wow. Wow or meow. Thank you, yeah. I was, I was trying to work out how to, <laughs> how to work that in. Me, wow. I mean, stunning, Chris. Absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you for that rendition. It's, uh, it's really interesting to see where he wanted to go with the whole, uh, whole animal farm thing. Um, Chris, was there anything else that Orwell was working on that never got published or finished? He was working on a follow-up to Down and Out in Paris and London, where he posed as an aristocrat to expose the habits and behaviours of the upper class. Oh, wow. So the original was... What was the original called, sorry? Down and Out in Paris and London. What was the, uh, the follow-up going to be called? Up and In... In Paris and London. He was also working on an erotic prequel to 1984, entitled 1969. That's the end of this episode. Um, you've been listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton and the Institute can be found at MuinFotoRere, which is M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E-R-E. And you can contact the podcast on Twitter at C-Cubes, that's S-W-E-C-U-B-E-S, and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. Please be sure to rate and review this episode on whatever platform you use. It really helps us. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. And remember, you probably could make it up, but we haven't. Honest. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Goodbye. Goodbye. Right, Chris, can I can I just ask you a really philosophical question that I've never that's never occurred to me to ask before? Okay. You know this like Antarctica that's down south? Yeah. 
what's the like the middle of it the, the the proper south pole what's actually there what is actually at the actual south pole that's not really a philosophical question is it it's more of a a, a geographical question yes <laughs> yes it is yeah so i just worked out what yeah okay yes fine <laughs> why did you say philosophical i wanted to get your attention <laughs> well, i mean my attention would have been equally piqued by geographical be any kind of graphical or illogical would have piqued my interest can i can i ask you a pornographical question <laughs> yes you can piper i'm already tenting <laughs> what's a what what is actually at your actual south pole uh, my south pole well <laughs> oh shit no i mean that is sorry that wasn't let me question. tell you piper <laughs> <laughs> 